0: Hi everyone, uh, I'm Utkarsh, the founder of Network Capital, here with two community members and friends um, who have distinguished CVs, but they are not here today because of what they've done, but uh, because of what they are doing. And I think that the theme that I wanna explore in this uh, particular podcast is creativity in crisis. And I'm gonna let them both tell a bit about themselves and uh, see where we go from there. So, uh, Samira, why don't we start with you? Um, tell us a bit about who you are and where you are in life.
1: Thanks, Adhikarsh. Uh, I'm Samira. I'm a fairly recent cancer survivor, early stage breast cancer. I am currently working in medical diagnostics as my day job, but one of the things I've been doing since sort of the end of my active treatment is I am also the founder of Manta Cares. Manta Cares is a global community of caregivers and survivors of cancer. We focus on designing and developing tangible tools and resources for anybody going through the cancer experience. And we recently, actually, thanks to you, launched our own podcast, Manta Cares, that you can listen on as well. And we've been hosting some phenomenal guests and speakers to help build this community
0: globally. I'm really looking forward to Patrick's episode on Monday. That should be fun. And uh, Sanjay, how about you? Where are you in life?
2: Um, thank you for having me here, Utkarsh. My name is Sanjay. Um, like Samira, I'm also a recent brain cancer. I don't really know if I should call it patient or survivor, but I'm a brain tumor survivor, but living with incurable brain cancer. I got diagnosed last year in September on the day I was supposed to start my master's at Harvard. I was 29 and I'm currently 30. So, so it's not really an ideal age to get diagnosed with cancer at all. Um, I'm a learning designer by profession. I build learning experiences, both virtual And offline. And um, like Samira, I'm also working on building a sort of a community of uh, young adult survivors, patients, and caregivers in India who can support each other. I'm currently leading an effort to write and publish a book on lived experiences of Indian young adults uh, with cancer called uh, Don't Ask Me How I'm Doing Life, Death, and Everything in Between is a book on adulting with cancer and um, I live in India right now with my parents in Hyderabad and uh, yeah that's about it.
0: Thank you both for being here. So uh, why did you call your book Don't Ask Me How I'm Doing?
2: So when you have cancer the first thing people do is that they bombard you with questions like oh my god how are you doing now oh my god how are you and at one point of time uh, I realized that I was really tired of people asking me the question and uh, in a in a regular setup it would be just an icebreaker or a small talk to say hey how are you it's like saying what's up but when you ask that to a cancer patient or a survivor uh The expectation is that you are likely wanting to hear the truth. But in my experience, most people aren't ready to hear the truth. They don't want to know that you are struggling. They don't want to know that you're having a mental breakdown. They don't want to know that you are in pain. They certainly don't want to know the side effects of your treatment or what you're going through. So at one point, I decided that, you know, if I ever write a book, it's going to be about like, stop the, cut the, pardon my French bullshit and just ask me what you want to ask. So don't
1: ask me how I'm doing it comes
0: from there. Samira, do you agree with what you said?
1: Uh, I had the same reaction. I, I I definitely hit a point where I couldn't take that question anymore. I think the way I navigated it was probably different. Um, I Essentially, uh, when I got diagnosed, I knew that treatment for me was going to go on for months and months and months. So for me, there was so much stuff ahead. There was like 19, 20 months of treatment ahead of me. And I knew that. So I knew that I was gonna get that question more and more and more, essentially for the next couple of years. So I ended up like, putting my caregiver team together and my brother was the communication director. So anytime someone asked me that question, I would just point it to him and I just wouldn't I just wouldn't take the question. Um, Unless, so a couple of exceptions, unless I was actively talking to a handful of people, very, very, very small set of people. Um, When they asked me, it was different because I I did know that I had the space to talk about what was happening. For me, the uh, only other piece of it, Sanjay, that I don't know if I fully agree with is, I don't know if it's necessarily cut to the chase or cut to the bullshit. I, I genuinely don't think people know how to handle it. No,
3: I agree with you. That's sorry, it. I have no idea. Yeah, people I don't know if are
2: you not around. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely agree with you on that. But um, my grouse is that if you don't know what to say, just say things like "I hope you get well. I hope you feel better soon." Instead of asking me what I'm going through, because it feels like if you're not ready to listen to me, why are you asking me that question? Because the response they're expecting from me is, oh, I'm good or I'm hanging in there. But more often than not, I'm not hanging in there. Most of the times I'm actually having trouble to just like get out of bed or to feel hopeful about life or to feel like what's the purpose of it all, right? Like why did I have to get it and nobody else that I know had to get it, right? So I, like you, I had a select few number of people in my life who I know and they ask this question, they are willing to make time, space and energy to listen to what I'm going through. But when most others ask me this question, it's just triggering because they actually don't want to know what's happening. They just It's a icebreaker of sorts. And many people don't even ask me that question because, like you mentioned, they just don't know what to say. They're tongue-tied to a certain extent, not in a good way. And nobody prepares you to have these conversations. And that's precisely the point of the book that, you know, it's okay if you know someone who has cancer and if they are young and here's a sneak peek into what their life's like and what you can ask them and what you should not ask them.
0: I think Sanjay is making an important point. Sameera, maybe you can tell us a bit about the numbers. like uh, What does cancer data tell us about you know the world population, the spread of cancer, and uh, how might we prepare the future generations to have more nuanced conversations with patients and survivors?
1: Uh, so the stats are pretty dreary. Uh, I think overall lifetime odds of getting cancer are very, very high. It's anywhere between one and three to one and two people. Lifetime odds, right? So the life, the odds of any one of us had two out of three not already had cancer, uh, the odds of the three of us, one of us would have had cancer in our lifetime, right? I think if you look at the AYA community, the adolescent and young adult community that sanjas referred to, the... Incidence is definitely rising. I believe it's between 15 to 30% increase year on year right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sat in the, the map on what were the odds of me in particular getting cancer. I, I don't have a family history of it. Nobody in my family had breast cancer. It's one of the kinds of cancers that has a hereditary sort of element to it if you did have it, right? And I calculated the odds of me in particular absolute odds at 0.04%. Which I will bet you anything, Sanjay's odds are lower, lower than mine <laughs> because breast cancer is uh, significantly more common than uh, brain cancer, especially when you get diagnosed. Sanjay, I was uh, a week after I done 30s when I got diagnosed as well. So, very, very similar age. Um, and it, it's just low. AYA cancer is not, even though it's increasing, it's not common. You're, you are definitely the odd one out. Uh, you are definitely the exception to the rule which is the rule is the older you get, and your odds are going to keep going up.
3: Yeah.
0: So, so we clearly need to prepare the future generations and the current generation to have uh, more nuanced conversations about it, which is why I think, Sanjay, your book comes out at an important time. Do you want to tell us how you structured it, how you wrote it, amidst everything that you're going through?
2: Sure. Um, so I had my... I got diagnosed in the first week of September last year. I moved back to India in the same week. I got my surgery done in the last week of September. Then I gave myself three months of rest to recover from the surgery. Brain surgeries are pretty intensive and I had a seven hour long surgery, but thankfully I recovered pretty well. I had to literally learn how to use my hands again. I had to train myself to walk again. I had to train myself to bathe again. I had to train myself to type again. So it was quite a lot of work. So after the rehabilitation period, um, I was really tired of sitting and doing nothing, uh, watching a lot of Netflix, but not feeling productive at all. So I decided to start looking for work again. My doctors had strictly warned me against doing anything that's very stressful because I still get seizures. So I have brain tumor-related epilepsy as a goodbye gift from my tumor. So I live with that now and I'm on meds for the rest of my life for that. So one of the triggers for my seizures and epilepsy are stress. So I can't ever go back to work that's extremely stressful or tiring or like uh, requires a lot of effort. So I knew that I couldn't join a full time job anyway. And uh, I had started exploring, you know, the possibility of helping the community now that I belong to in some ways. I just didn't know how. I initially thought that I would like create an NGO or a nonprofit and like create awareness, run support groups. Um, I don't know, like I was just spitballing over there. And then I decided to start work. I looked for jobs online on LinkedIn. Um, in a very vulnerable moment, I decided to reveal to everyone on LinkedIn that I have, diagnosed with brain cancer last year and i had to fly back to india and i've just finished my surgery and i'm looking for part-time opportunities and the linkedin community really rallied around me and helped me find some opportunities and uh, i found a job and i was just about to start part-time work and i got covid talk about being (laughs) lucky and how (laughs) so Then that was 21 days of, again, bed rest and not being able to do much. But I finally started working in February of this year. And while I was working, I was working only three hours a day. Um, I wanted to make sure that I had some time and energy to figure out what I want to do with this community that I now belong to. Um, I was on LinkedIn scrolling one day in March when I noticed that there's this new innovative open authoring platform called Let's Author which was looking for non-traditional authors and non-traditional topics to write on. So since one of the people who works there was a friend from a previous um, organization I was working at, I I worked at, I reached out to her and I pitched an idea about writing a book on lived experiences of young adults with cancer. And uh, she and her team quickly did a search on all online book platforms, e-commerce platforms to see if something like this existed and when they realized that there's literally no other book like this that exists, they saw an opportunity and they gave me a green light to start putting it together so March 23rd 2022 is when I pitched the idea, first week of April 2022 is when the book idea got approved and then the first two weeks of April I spent on figuring out what is the purpose of this book, what's the book going to do what is it going to cover and um, I was just reflecting on my own experiences and the questions and challenges I had and then I realized that there's a lot of material that's already available in the west all I had to do was to um, see where I could find potential alignments and find areas where you know the east is different from the west and the cultural taboos and norms affect the east very differently from the west and structure my book accordingly so the vision of the book is to help other young adult patients who are newly diagnosed or patients who are going through treatment or survivors who have just finished treatment and trying to enter the world and figure out what the new normal is as well as caregivers of young adults because that's a pretty intensive role to play as well because somehow you are now, with a person who doesn't know how to navigate their life anymore, because all their dreams, hopes, and aspirations have come crashing down, and they are suddenly having to recalibrate and figure out what their priorities are. Some of them have gotten terminal illnesses, some of them have been cured, but have been told that there are chances of recurrences uh, some of them have been told that they don't have terminal illness, but they have incurable illness, and they get to only live for ten, fifteen years, like me and in a situation like that how do you still be a 20 year old or a 30 year old right like how do you hang out with friends how do you go dating how do you go doing your work how do you go looking for finances and insurance how do you manage intimacy how do you manage relationships with family how do you manage dealing with like insecurities etc and that's practically how the book has been structured to deal with each of these themes. And uh, fortunately, I found uh, nine to 10 other co-authors apart from me who have agreed to write two chapters for the book on different themes that fall under these uh, broad umbrellas. And uh, I am collating and directing the vision of the book as well as helping them understand what the book is and is not Uh, The one thing I noticed when when I started looking at books that exist in the market is that there is a lot of stuff around inspiration porn. And I use the word porn very carefully because a lot of people in the cancer community and a lot of people outside the cancer community expect cancer patients, survivors to be these figures of, you know, inspiration and motivation and like um, people who represent resilience and beating the odds etc i feel like it puts a lot of pressure on the people who are going through a traumatic experience or have already been through a traumatic experience to be heroes of their own journey it almost makes them feel like if you are not thriving after your cancer uh, you're not doing the cancer journey right I, in fact i hate the word cancer journey uh, it's not one i chose to be on it's not one that i'd like to be on it's not one i'd recommend someone else to be on so I prefer using the word the cancer experience because you didn't really have a choice. Neither did you sign up for it. Um, So my book is trying to portray a real, raw, honest, yet hopeful uh, take on what it's like to be a young adult with cancer. Uh, An unvarnished version, very vulnerable, very raw, um, where people are not saying, oh, I did... I was like this before cancer, cancer happened to me and now I'm thriving this way. It's not that. It talks about all the struggles that we still continue to go through, all the things that we still haven't been able to figure out, all the ways in which we still suffer, sometimes silently, sometimes visibly. But if my experience so far has taught me anything at all after interacting with so many people, is that cancer cancer survivors struggle a lot But the pain and the suffering is so invisible that most people think that, oh, you're cured or you're like done with your treatment. Like, why don't you move on in your life? Why don't you move ahead? Why are you stuck on your past? Like, why can't you just get on with it? And I'm just like, how do you move ahead in life when you've come so close to death Or when you know that there is an expiry date literally set on your forehead, right? Like in my case, I've been told very clearly that, you know, You are not going, there is no treatment that can ever cure your cancer. All we can tell you is that you're not terminal yet, yet being the imperative word. But you will keep having recurrences. We we don't know when the recurrence will happen. We don't know how often they will happen. And we don't even know how quickly they will happen. Uh, So the book is essentially trying to navigate that difficult space of How do you still be a young adult? How do you still adult with cancer, right? Adulting with cancer. Like, I'll give you a small instance. Earlier, before cancer, the way I used to usually socialize with my friends was over drinks or like over smokes or going out dancing or partying. Almost all of them, I'm not allowed to do anymore. I can't drink because they try to trigger my seizures. I can't smoke because hello, cancer. I can't go dancing because my skull hasn't healed from my surgery yet. I can't stay up late at night because it triggers my cancer and triggers my seizures. So how do you then re-enter this world that you were once a part of and still live a life, right? You can't stop living life. So So the book is part memoir, part etiquette guide, part advice column for people who are looking for hopeful stories are just stories of people like them because it's a very isolating experience. I I practically didn't know anyone else my age. Like in, in the Indian support group communities for cancer, you either have pediatric cancer patients and their parents or you have geriatric cancer patients and their caregivers. So I spent about seven months finding one another person who was under 40 with cancer. And it took me six months to find that person. And then once I found them, we became instantly cancer buddies because we could connect and relate to so many things that we had in common. So there is so many there are, there are so many common experiences that young adults with cancer go through that the other people don't understand. I don't blame them either. But the fact is that you need cancer buddies. You need a support system where you are truly understood. And I'm hoping that the book will be able to start conversations like these and. Uh, be the silent confidant for people who are looking for a community like this and then hopefully turn into something bigger, into a community of sorts where people can come together, talk to each other, support each other, etc.
0: When I start uh, started this uh, podcast, I told you I want to explore creativity amidst uncertainty. And I think your example is a pretty powerful one. And I've also seen Samira really turbocharge her creativity in building you know i think one of the world's first communities for cancer survivors and caregivers um so both of you are doing fascinating work but let's explore them one at a time samira you feel free to comment on anything sanjay mentioned particularly work in cancer what did that mean for you
1: So I'm hearing Sanjay talk about his experience and part of me, my heart is breaking. Uh, And part of the reason my heart is breaking because I think your example and the context is true regardless of where you get diagnosed as an AYA patient. You are not pediatric, you're not under 18 and you're not an adult cancer. So the number of times I walked into the clinic and people looked at me and like, why are you here? It's just, I was like, oh my God, like, I am in this infusion ward because I have cancer. I'm not here for fun, guys. Like you don't need to ask me that question or give me that reaction, right? But it happened all the time, so I I get it. I think the difference of Sanjay was, I guess I, I'm I'm in California, and thankfully one of the things that happened very very soon after me being diagnosed is I got connected to a group called Base Bay Area Young Survivors. And it's all people under 40 who've been diagnosed and had it not been for that community center, I, oh my God, this experience would have been so much worse. So I, I think that when I hear your story, I think it reaffirms all of the insights that we've been gathering on intercares, especially from the South Asian community, especially for communities outside the U.S., I would say predominantly, where it is incredibly isolating. Yeah. And you are you are a, in a rounding error on a statistic and yeah if you take a denominator of 1.3 billion people there are lots of us sitting out there that they just they just are it's just we don't know about each other and i think that definitely reaffirms what it is that we're building um i think for me my journey started a bit differently than you um when i was going through it everybody told me to write. And I have tons and tons of writing from that period of time. I just I just have not yet gotten myself to publish my own writing.
3: Um
1: yet. I think for me I I have a, I have a question with this about me, but I just have a uh, incredibly practical bent of mind. It, it's a little annoying, I think, for <laughs> people at times. But for me the practicality of it was Let's remove emotions for a second from the picture, which I know is not possible, but let's remove it. And then let's come back to the cancer experience. Even then, just to get through the basic things is nearly impossible. It is so hard. Like navigating nutrition. I think you've been talking about these things already. Navigating symptom management, navigating medication, navigating... like. Just the sheer number of appointments to figure out what the heck the next step is. Just the basic things are near impossible to deal with. And I kind of hit my emotional low point, second cycle of chemo. I came back. I'm also, by the way, a designer by training. Um, I work on in-product in the medical device companies. And I've been in healthcare my entire journey. So despite being a bioengineer, having worked in healthcare, having worked in oncology, knowing the data, It was incredibly overwhelming just to get through these appointments. And I speak the terminology, so I'm not sitting there trying to like map random terms to what it means to my life. I understand it and even then it was really, really tough. So I came back, second cycle of chemo, couldn't sleep, tons of insomnia and ended up just sketching out like frameworks and structures to help myself think about what was happening. And send it to the printer to, I was like, hey, I just need you to print this because I, I barely can get through my day right now. And I need you to give me something on paper that I can take with me to these appointments. So she looks at it and she gives me a copy, but then she gives me multiple other copies. She's like, look, I don't know what it is you build, but I can just tell someone else is going to benefit from this. So I'm giving you multiple copies. And that's kind of where the manga journey started from. It was some printer looking at what I'd sent her, being like, hey, you know what? You should give this out to people. And that was the very first planner we created. This was back in 2020.
3: Um,
1: We've gone through four fairly big design iterations on it. So it's not a book. It doesn't have too much narrative in there, but it's just a practical, what you need to do to get through your day, including the emotional side. So there's gratitude journals, hope journals, uh, healing concepts in there just on how you get through your day like healing can mean creating through the crisis that occurs is trying to draw out right mm-hmm. it can mean different things for different people it can mean going for a walk because if i get through 10 minutes of walking that's a win uh but people don't realize that that your wins are really small actually for a fairly large part of the experience right and so that's kind of where the Manta Planner journey started. And over the last sort of six, seven months, we've been expanding that sort of physical planner into now a basically
0: bunch of services. Sorry, and now bundling uh, so many different products to it. There's a podcast, there's a community, there's a newsletter. Um, we are getting you to you know share more of your story in, in a wide range of ways.
2: Um, the piece on creativity through crisis. I think for me, it was a way to cope with what was happening around me. I wanted to do something tangible with the time that I had on my hand and with the sudden realization that I had that there's this community that exists that is completely underserved and has a huge need gap that somebody needs to fill. And I felt like I had the resources and the talent to do it. So I wanted to give it a shot. So completely resonate with the creativity through crisis uh, bit that both Utkarsh and you speak about. Uh, But for me, it came out of a necessity more than like, um, say, a personal resolve or something. Um, I do believe that there's a certain amount of post-traumatic growth there. uh, Because I was able to push through the emotional fallout of my diagnosis and my treatment. Uh, with lots of therapy, of course, but still, it did happen, thankfully. Um, about your planner, Samira, I think I am a little lucky and privileged in the sense that I didn't have to go through the chemo and radiation process, at least not yet. My oncologist says that if it, if my tumor comes back, not if, when my tumor comes back, I will probably have to go that route. And when I do, I might need the planner, for sure. Um, But I have spoken to enough people who have said the same thing, that it's sometimes very difficult to keep a track of all that you need to do. The meds that you need to take, the appointments that you need to uh, make, the appointments you need to attend, the reports you need to get, the tests that you need to give, um, the diet that you need to follow, the routines that you need to uh, keep in check. So it, it can be very overwhelming. But one thing that everyone I've spoken to so far has told me is that in many ways being the patient is the easier part of the journey because, you know, it's like you're just going through the motions. You know, you have to put one foot in front of the other and you have to just keep your eye on the price and the price being completing the treatment. But the minute you finish the treatment, instead of this, I don't know, pot of gold that you're hoping at the end of the rainbow, all you find is this deep sense of grief and mourning for the loss of your identity and a sudden realization of what has hit you, right? Um, And I feel like there is also scope for maybe you and I to work together and see what we can possibly create for people who find themselves in that spot.
1: I fully 200% resonate with that, both personally and then from an insight lens. I think the thing I'll add to your insight lens is, from the patient lens, it is at moment post treatment. It's kind of like you, you're like running really fast to get to this destination, and then you realize the destination is actually a cliff, and you're jumping off, and you're like, oh god, I am falling. What 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 is next? Am I going to be able to swim or not? So I, I definitely, I definitely think that is an area for lots and lots of support that's needed in different forms for different types of people. Yeah. Um, I think the other piece of it, and I think you referred to this probably earlier on, is the caregiver. One of our special, special focuses on Mata Cares is the caregiver because, it, some of the way I think about it is, when I was going through it, I I had blinders on. It was just like, let me get through this, and I think unlike kind of your journey, which was like very compressed in time, mine was like dragged on for like months and months and months and just kept going and they hit a point where my oncologist was like look i think we should stop infusions because it's affecting your mental health so badly and i remember being like you know what no there are two more left i'm gonna get through it i just need to get through it and it's um i i don't think we as a community talk about that a lot right but the reality is while i was going through it there were six other people in my immediate circle who had nothing, who had absolutely nothing. No support group, no medical uh, help, no guidance, nothing. My mom, my dad grew up in India, came to the U.S. to take care of me during COVID. They didn't know who to speak to. They were scrambling to figure out like what should we cook for her? How does it change during chemo versus surgery? versus radiation versus survivorship? Like how does it evolve? My siblings were grappling with it because everyone had their own jobs. My parents and my brothers were working on night shift because of the Indian time zone. So during the day they care for me and during the night they would work because they couldn't just give up their, (laughs) give up their, you know, businesses back home. My partner who I live with had no support whatsoever. His best friend and partner was just like a different person for two years and we've had our like struggles of like getting back into trying to figure out what our new kind of normal is on the relationship side so there's just tons of it right but on the caregiver side there's nothing nothing in the us i am certain there's nothing in india so it's just uh that that has been one of the core sort of insights at least for manta cares which is we want to be able to build this for them too because i do firmly firmly believe that if we supported them And very selfishly, I think the patient's life gets better. (laughs) Um, And I think their life gets better, right? So um, I definitely think there's room for us to work together to come back to your
3: uh,
0: initial point. Yeah, this is something that uh, either of you can answer. But uh, have you noticed that creativity amongst survivors is a secular trend? Or are there people who... You know who see who are so overwhelmed with grief and hopelessness that doing anything seems uh, an impossible ask because I definitely do not want to glamorize creativity as a as a tool to overcome a crisis which Sanjay alluded to as productivity uh, abuse so um, would love your comments on both
3: I can start um
2: I feel like everyone has a different coping mechanism right after uh, your diagnosis, through the treatment and in the survivorship period. Uh, But uh, some people do take to creativity as a means of healing themselves, as a means to make sense of what's happening to them, as a means to find meaning in their life. Um, But the idea of creativity might be very different from what we understand as creative. They might just bake a new cake, or like they might try to cook a new recipe, or they might try to, you know, try a different routine for themselves, which is all creative tasks for them. Uh, The reason I allude to it being glamorized is because not every person has the resources or the privilege to do something which is noticeable, uh, that does not dismiss the fact that they're doing creative endeavors or they're trying to find their ways uh, to push themselves out of the bottomless pit that you can find yourself in. Which is why I mentioned this very clearly in my book also and I'm very comfortable uh, saying it out loud. I enjoy a multitude of privileges that gives me the opportunity to stand here and do the stuff that I do. I am a cisgendered, upper class, upper caste Hindu man who has studied in the top schools in India, who has access to perfect and brilliant networks, whose parents are doctors, and who speaks impeccable English. So it just opens a lot of doors for me. So in many ways, my privilege has helped me uh, in some ways do what I'm doing, and I'm leveraging that privilege for the benefit of others who may not have that privilege per se. So, the point I'm trying to get at is that creativity in crisis in my case was also partly because of the privileges I enjoy. So, it wasn't necessarily just because of my intent or because of my desire to do so.
1: I, I think Thank I. Thank you I, for sharing I, that. I, I definitely relate to that. Sanjay, but I think there's uh, there's probably one more thing that you mentioned that I think it's worth talking about. Regardless of privilege, though, I, I think a cancer diagnosis is almost like you have a vase and your vase just came crashing down.
3: Yeah.
1: It's shattered. So no matter what your privilege is, you as a person need to figure out whether you want to just sit there and watch that vase on the floor and let it be there. You want to go buy a new vase? You want to go put that back together or whatnot? Like you need to figure that out. Regardless of socioeconomic class, regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of which identity is, regardless of your privileged classes, you have to figure it out. There's no other option. Either you figure it out or someone in your family is going to figure it out. So at yeah. some point you need to, and a decision can be, I'm just going to let it sit there and do nothing. But that is also a decision. And I think that's where the creativity kicks in, which is you don't have an option but to be creative. Now, the manifestation I think is different. And I think the manifestation for you and me and likes is because of the privilege we have. I, I agree with that. And we're able to do different things with the vase, like go buy a new vase. Like I think we can do that because of the privilege. But I don't think you have an option. I I think you have to address it. And oncologists keep saying this I've heard so many oncologists say this to me where they're like you know patients um patients get diagnosed and then there are three types of patients there are patients who curl up and die there are patients who fight like hell and still die and then there are patients who uh, advocate for themselves and I'm like okay I believe the the second two. the first one I don't know like yes it's hard yes they have that dark moment yes of course some patients like let the vast sit then watch it for months if not years but i just i i i struggle when people dismiss the patient experience i struggle when people tell me that patients don't have agency because i do think we all have agency now the question is do we use it or not but we absolutely have agency and we have agency regardless of privilege status now it's harder don't get me wrong. Being a brown woman is harder. I mean, it's just it's just harder. Like, I get that. But you have agency. And yeah. I I think that crisis forces creativity. And I think it's up to us to decide what we make of it. So,
3: I don't know. No, thank you for your reflections.
2: Yeah. Now that you put it that way, Shamira, I think um, it just brings to my mind that the choice or the agency is to get out of the hole that you find yourself in, no matter who you are or what your privileges are, but what you do after you're out of that hole or you make that decision to get out of the hole is dependent on the privileges that you have. So yeah, I can't agree with you completely on that. Yeah, There is agency to obviously not wallow in self-pity and decide not to do anything with your life. I definitely advocate for patients advocating for themselves. I have literally read every piece of scientific literature that's available on my type of cancer a lot more than probably my own oncologist has absolutely against recommending it to anyone but the point is that there is agency you do have a choice like it's very easy for me to say hey I'm going to die anyway what's the point of it all and just sit there and be like I'm going to watch tv for the next 10-15 years of my life I'm just going to like do nothing at all and I also concur that Crisis pushes you to be creative, forces you to be creative. The manifestation of that creativity might differ for different people. Um, But I also know that depression is very common amongst people who get diagnosed with cancer, and um, it's sometimes not just a choice. Oh, yeah. Sometimes needs medical attention, which means therapy and antidepressants and any other regimen that they will have to be on. It's not as simple as choice. That's all I wanted to say.
1: I, I think you're totally right. I think the the parallel that I end up drawing very often is one of my um one of my undergrad focuses was art history. So I have a degree in art history. So I forgot about studied a lot of artists. And one of the things you notice Definitely good. Why bad? <laughs> oh it depends on who you ask. Uh <laughs> the themes so that comes up consistently is if you look at the really if you look at the like masters and and I, I don't mean masters and the gendered masters I mean female men, men together the masters of art right you look at the Rothko's of the world and you look at their mental health very 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 often they're suffering from some dark mental health something and I say something because sometimes it's depression sometimes it's incredible anxiety sometimes it's bipolar sometimes it's There's a whole gamut here yeah. and they do suffer from it right and then if you look at their pieces and you track their pieces with their mental health journeys it's quite fascinating how the pieces also morph and it's yeah. not always dark that's that's the surprising part it's not always dark because while they might be in a dark hole what they end up creating might actually have a very, very positive impact on someone looking at that piece 50, 60, 80, 100, 200 years later, right? So I, I, I do believe it's, I, I don't think depression is a choice, by the way, I'm completely with you. I think there is biological and health related things that cause depression and anxiety and I, metabolic syndromes, and like, there's tons and tons of biological backings in there. But I think the choice to create is a choice. Yeah, that I completely agree with. That moment is the choice part of it. It's not the choice to be depressed, right? Because I I, I don't think you can choose to be depressed in clinical depression. Like, I, I don't think that's true. But I think you do have the choice to make something out of it.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Segway into art was fascinating. Because uh, if you go back and look at the history of art, which uh, I'm pretty sure many of our listeners would have, art was a tool of education, you yeah. know, in the Romantic era, it became a tool of uh, inspiration, building on top of things. So, one, people should look at uh, the mental health of the artists, the creators in different eras and see how they capture the zeitgeist. And two is that we are not saying that uh, uh, a particular infliction is required for creativity. We are merely exploring it with two of our community members. Who happened to be facing something serious? Just a disclaimer. Um, Now we've discussed art. We've discussed creativity. I want to go to pleasure and dreams and conclude. Yeah? Let's do that. Um, There's a global crisis of pleasure, which a couple of authors I admire, they've talked about. pleasure has become performative, very Instagrammable, TikTokable, etc. Now, talk to me about pleasure for both of you. When you encounter a life changing situation, does the meaning of pleasure change? If yes, how? You want to take that one
3: first? (laughs) I
1: can try. uh, uh, So this one's a little hard. I think the word I struggle with is pleasure. I do think the word means has changed for me. I think the So maybe I'm gonna take this a little differently and I'm gonna bridge our question. Sorry, (laughs) Adgarsh. So one of the authors, um, I so I had a curable intent treatment, right? So unlike Sanjay, I don't have a sort of stamped expiration date that's gonna be. But I know the data, and therefore I know that it's not a stamped expiration date, but I know that I don't get the privilege of counting 40 years. Like I I know that the data is fairly clear on that. Now, whether it's five, 10, 15, 20. Who knows? But I, I don't get the option of being like, yeah, I'm 30. I have the rest of my life to live. So I, I don't have that. So what happened is I spent a lot of time reading about death and mortality last year. And one of the quotes that really resonated with me is um, by Mitch Album, Album, A-L-B-O-M. Uh, he wrote a book called Tuesdays with Maury. And Maury is his professor who is diagnosed with abdominal illness that gets progressively worse, and physically progressively worse. So he basically gets paralyzed from his toes all the way to his brain, effectively. And in a very, very small book, in this book, uh, Mitch talks has this line in there uh, where he's paraphrasing a lesson from this professor of his. And the line is, when you really face your mortality, your ambitions will change. So I think like that, I think ambitions change, I think dreams change, I think pleasure changes, I think how you live your life, at least for me, definitely changed. And in small and big ways, um, I think like Sanjay, diet, alcohol, drugs, all of that stuff is very, very different today than it was two years ago. (laughs) Uh, Friend circle, who you hang out with, how you spend the time, uh, all of that is different, right? So when you look at pleasure, I, I think pleasure can be defined in a few different ways. Like how I spend my time is definitely different today than it was two years ago. Who I spend my time with is different. Uh, what gives me happiness is very different. Or at least I see things differently, I guess. Um, what I choose to do from a professional lens is different.
3: There's, there's At least for me, there's a world of change in a good way. Fascinating. Sanjay? No, I completely agree with everything Samira has said. Um my
2: world came crashing down when um I think an intern doctor at howard Medical School told me that I have an incurable brain cancer. I'm probably going to die in five years. And from that moment I knew very well that none of the dreams and aspirations I had for myself are ever going to matter anymore. And it's so almost a year since then, and I can confidently say that they don't. So in many ways, my dreams, aspirations, and hopes have changed. And uh, like Samira, what counts as pleasurable or brings me joy and happiness has changed. Um, do I feel FOMO sometimes? Definitely. We live in a world of Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, nearly dying Facebook, whatever. So... <clears throat> Do I sometimes feel like it's unfair that people get to go out and travel and have fun and I get I don't get to do a lot of those things? I do. Um, I would be lying if I said no, I'm like some saint who doesn't feel FOMO at all. That's an absolute lie. I do feel jealous. I do feel um, life can be unfair. I do feel like I would like to do all of those things. And I do hope that someday I will, provided my health permits. <clears throat> But uh, I don't take the little things for granted anymore. And I certainly don't hold grudges as much as I used to hold them before. And uh, there is a stamped expiry date for me. So I take pleasure in the smaller things a lot more. Like a conversation, a really good conversation with a friend. Or the ability to write a nice poem. or to rally support for a cause that is very close to my heart or to bring people together towards a common goal or a mission. The boundaries between what counts as pleasure, happiness and what counts as work has changed quite a bit. And uh, I've tried stopping myself from falling into the productivity, capitalism rut. I sometimes still fail at it, but uh, I've realized that there's more to life than just work and achievements and awards and accolades something that had been racking up up till like up till to the up to the point till i got diagnosed with cancer and um, i had like really big dreams and aspirations for my life i wanted to do a phd and i'm not really sure if i'm going to be well enough to complete a 10 month masters program so it it changes you in ways that you can't describe and My friends have changed. Like the people I thought would stick around no longer stick around. Uh, The people I thought would be there during my treatment were there during the treatment. But the minute I was done with my treatment, they were like, hey, you look normal. You do everything that everyone else does. Like you're writing a book. You seem like perfectly normal. You don't need to be there around you anymore. And I'm just like, how do I make this invisible suffering visible for you so that you start to acknowledge that there is still a lot that needs to be acknowledged and addressed. And I think it's the same challenge with mental health because it's not like physical illnesses because you can't see like a broken leg or like a bleeding limb. You won't take it seriously but same is true for cancer survivorship. There is a lot of processing of grief and of pain and of suffering. I will just take a second and give you an example. I don't feel the same person anymore. Like if I could use a reference, the ship ship of thesis reference, there was literally a chunk of my brain removed from my head and there's a hole there which will never get filled and I've been told that if I ever have recurrences, I will have to undergo treatment again and if the treatments don't work, they'll have to keep scooping out my brain till there is no brain left or till I die. So it makes me sometimes wonder, will I be the same person if they keep scooping out parts of my brain? And do I already feel like a different person? I I do. I don't think that I'm as vain or I'm as naive or I'm as... I used to think I'm invincible in many ways. I have really, really lived up my 20s in ways that I wouldn't recommend to anyone. But that... That veneer of invincibility completely breaks, and you are now literally staring death in its eyes, and it's constantly reminding you that you are on borrowed time, and you have to make the most of whatever time you've left. So, you enjoy the little pleasures as much as you enjoy the big hopes and dreams that you have reevaluated and recalibrated because you've seen death in its eyes.
0: Well. On that note, I don't think um, I want to ask you anything else. Just thank you both very much for your time and for your contributions to the community at large, to the world at large. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't or anything that you'd like to comment on or add? Words of advice.
2: I think the one thing I would want to close on is to anyone who's listening to this who might belong to the cancer community. Don't hesitate to reach out. Um, it might feel like you can steal yourself through this. It might feel like you don't need the self, uh, you don't need the support, you don't need the uh, people to speak to to get through this. But trust me, there will come a point where you will hit rock bottom, and no matter how well intentioned your caregivers and your best friends are, they're not going to be able to understand. So you will need cancer buddies, and don't hesitate to make a few.
0: Sameer.
1: Uh, <laughs> it's really hard to follow that one. Uh, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, please do feel free to reach out. I think for, from my end, I I think the only parting thought I have is we are living on bar time, but I, I do think
3: there's beauty it. Absolutely. And I think if we can anchor on the beauty, that might actually help us get through it. So.
0: Yeah yeah. Thank you both and uh, we should do this again in a few months perhaps.